This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours in African time on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. Hello, welcome to the program. My name is Spumele Lezondi, broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on 9625 kilohertz, that's on the 31 meter band if you're in Southern Africa. You can also stream us, it's channelafrica.co.za, that is channelafrica.co.za if you want to stream us. I'm with Onelentinti Wisani Matabula and Mosimundi. Makura, rather, this hour. And your top stories. The much-anticipated Judicial Commission of Inquiry into state capture in South Africa has commenced. Tributes continue to pour in following the death of one of the world's foremost diplomats. In economics, the Anglo Gold Shanti swings back into a first-half profit on the back of higher production and lower-than-expected retrenchment costs. And in sports, Nigeria looks to have averted a threat to its membership of FIFA following federal government's move to adhere to rules governing the game. Yes, on Thank you, Spoo. Mali's Constitutional Court has declared Ibrahim Boubacar Keita president after the 73-year-old incumbent won elections. The losing candidate, Smaila Caesar, said on Friday that he had lodged an appeal with the country's Constitutional Court to overturn the results that he says were fraudulent. Keita was a victor in a runoff on August 12th that credited him with 67.1% of the vote. He will begin his second five-year term on September 4. Political rift between Malawi President Peter Mutarika and Vice President Salos Chilima rather, has been reported as the country prepares to head to polls next year. Political violence has been reported in the country. Chilima resigned from the governing Democratic Progressive Party amid news that he was sidelined for the position of taking over from incumbent President Peter Mutarika through a convention. Human rights activist Yundule Mkawa. Sungula condemns the violence, saying this is retrogressive to multi-party democracy, which Malawians voted for in 1993. Dozens of traditional rulers have fled their palaces in Cameroon's English-speaking region. This is a week after armed men were pulled out of church and killed. The chiefs who have fled to safety say they are scared. Moki Kinzaka reports from Bureau. We are appealing to both the national and international community to turn their eyes on Cameroon and try to see how they can solve this problem 
before we swing into a full-fledged full-scale work. Traditional rulers are the auxiliary of the government. If tomorrow they say they have taken over, traditional rulers would now know that they have a new government. This rather is Chief Ibong Joseph of Atavi Village in southwestern Cameroon. Afghan authorities say Taliban militants have released most of the passengers abducted from three buses in northern Kunduz province. Around 150 people were abducted and taken away at gunpoint. Meanwhile, the country is waiting for a Taliban response to President Ashraf Ghani's proposal for a three-month ceasefire. An offer welcomed by the United States and NATO after nearly 17 years of war, the BBC's Anbarasan Etirajan. The passengers were traveling from Afghanistan's Takar province to the capital, Kabul, to meet their families for the festival of Eid al-Adha when Taliban fighters abducted them. A local official said security forces had managed to rescue most of the passengers, though more than 20 people were still being held hostage. One of the released passengers said the Taliban were trying to find out whether soldiers or government officials were traveling on the buses they had stopped. And lastly, a top South African lawyer who once advised Nelson Mandela will join the team helping Zimbabwe's opposition leader Nelson Chamisa to overturn the results of last month's presidential poll. Jeremy Gauntlet will join a team comprising Zimbabwean lawyers and high-profile South African advocates Dalimbofu and Tembe Kangukaitobi. Chamisa claims the results of the July 30 poll were manipulated to favor President-elect Emerson Nangagwa, who won the election with 50.8% of the declared vote compared to Chamisa's 44.3%. Channel African News, I'm Onelinzinzi. Thank you very much, Onele. It is 17.06 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. Now, the much-anticipated Judicial Commission of Inquiry into State Capture in South Africa has commenced in Johannesburg. In 2016, former public protector Tulima Donzela released a damning report exposing corruption at state-owned entities, including ASCOM, Transnet, and South African Airways. The Zondo Commission has been tasked with unraveling the full extent of corruption at state organs and allegations that Zuma used his position to secure deals for the Guptas and his son Duduzane in return for money. The Sunday Times reported that President Jacob Zuma, that former President Jacob Zuma, has been asked to give evidence in person at the inquiry about the alleged corrupt relationship with members of the controversial Gupta family. More from political analyst Dr. Somatota Figin. Without any doubt, it will yield tangible results. All what we could be asking is whether that will be substantially different from what we already know from the newspapers, from parliamentary presentations, mm. as well as from, uh, you know, several other cases which are going on. Now, with Zuma having been asked to come and give evidence, you know, what's the likelihood, in, in your opinion, that he will willingly come and give the evidence, uh, which may, of course, implicate him and some members of his family? And uh, should he refuse, can he be forced to give evidence? This particular commission has the force of imposing a subpoena. 
if you do have people who do not want to participate. Therefore, he is unlikely to find himself embarrassed by being forced by court orders or subpoenas to come and give evidence, but uh, he may resist at the very early stages. Now, let's look at the commission in its entirety and really the success of it. What will this mean for the country? You know, will this be a measure of the country's uh, democracy's maturity, uh, considering, of course, the high-profile uh, role players that are involved in this? It will be a great test for our democracy, but a celebration for our democracy if the process is handled well. It will also be a great test for both our ruling party, some of its leaders being implicated, as well as some of the corporates. So to that extent, it will be uh, one big test for the country. And uh, um, in terms of that test, you know, is this one of the ways that uh, maybe could signal that the country is indeed uh, really trying to fight uh, corruption? It is going to be a very positive signal both to our internal and external investors, to the voters, to the taxpayers and ordinary citizens that the rule of law, it might be delayed, but it will not be denied. That is Dr. Somato Dafigin, who is a South African political analyst, talking to Zikona Miso over there. The Nelson Mandela Foundation has joined the world in paying tribute to Kofi Annan, the Ghanaian-born former Secretary General of the United Nations, passed away on Saturday following a short illness at the age of 18. In 2007, Anan delivered the fifth Nelson Mandela annual lecture. Later, he became part of the Eldest Initiative, together with Madiba and Mrs. Grasha Marshall. He was an honoured guest at the 16th Nelson Mandela annual lecture delivered by President Barack Obama last month. Spokesperson at the Nelson Mandela Foundation, Luzo Gokoti, says they have lost a friend in Anan. We are saddened by this news. Uh, when we had the passing of uh, former Secretary General Kofi Annan, we were all taken by surprise because he was just here in South Africa with us uh, at the foundation, uh, attending the event of the foundation, of course, the event of the elders as well. And, you know, he was in high spirits. He was Kofi Annan that we all know. And now hearing this news yesterday, and we just could we could not comprehend, you know, deal with the shock. But uh, the foundation as an institution has lost a friend and has lost a dear partner in many things and initiatives that we're involved with. As you would know, he was an advocate of peace and human rights across the world. And kind of work that we do with him it involved those kind of initiatives as mandated by Madiba, both as the foundation, but also him mandated through the elders. So I think there were... There we we have uh, been dealt a blow as an institution, but also as champions of human rights. And obviously, Kofi Annan did a lot with regards to the United Nations and putting UN in the in the fore and people understanding what the United Nations does, just like uh, the Nelson Mandela Foundation is trying to do. Absolutely, a lot of people uh, got to know the work of the United Nations through the work that he did. He became the face and the voice. 
He was the person whom everybody looked up to when the various, uh, you know, superpowers and countries were at loggerheads or were in disagreements. And he, you know, he would come in and he would speak and become that voice of reason. So globally, he became that kind of symbol uh, of mediation, uh, of leadership. And then I think that uh, anybody who remembers the work of the United Nations would associate it with the time and the era of Secretary General Kofi Annan, the two terms that he was in office. Of course, he worked uh, with uh, the foundation, particularly uh, during his uh, retirement, worked with Madiba, uh, and, and quite a lot interacted around issues of mediation and peace building in many countries in Africa, but also around the world, making sure that uh, you know the vision and the dream of, of Madiba uh, is, is, is lived and enjoyed by many people, not just in South Africa, but globally. And in terms of, you've just spoken about how the world and South Africa is definitely going to miss him, but also in terms of the continent, his departure from this earth, what does it mean for the continent in terms of confli- uh, of resol- resolving a conflict? We are in a very unfortunate state in the continent of Africa because from time to time we have to uh, deal with uh, conflicts and, con- and 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 uh, crises that are inter and uh, intra um, uh, um, countries uh, within the African continent, and and I think those required the kind of leadership, the kind of wisdom that is entrenched or built on the values of peace, of of the kind of leadership that uh, Kofi Annan represented. You would know that uh, he, he, I mean, being an African himself, was very passionate about uh, making sure that uh, there's peace and there's democracy uh, in places uh, such as even the Central African Republic and many other parts of the continent where you know that uh, the, the wars are still uh, raging even today. Uh, so his concerns were always about making sure that even when those wars are in place uh, or are happening, uh, you know, they do not destroy uh, human beings, they do not affect children, they do not affect the vulnerable people, uh, and, 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 and there is an amicable way of engaging to resolve them, particularly if we can in, in, in resolve them through negotiation. So he was that kind of leader, and I think that the foundation was particularly attached to his uh, leadership uh, and him as a person because he believed a lot in those kind of values. Of course, we know that he continued his work through the elders, worked with uh, uh, people like uh, uh, Mama Grasha Machel and many others. And of course, that work uh, uh, continues even post his life uh, here on earth. And I think that uh, new leaders need to uh, emerge and and learn his, uh, his values and his style of leadership and his commitment and make sure that we are able to deliver the dream that many Africans today continue to dream. Luzo Okote is a spokesperson at the Nelson Mandela Foundation talking to Tuto Ngobeni there, 17.15 Central African time. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice.
Hello Africa, welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. Your time is 1716 Central African time. You're still listening to Africa Digest with Ms. Pomele Lezondi. With you until 1800 Central African time. Remember that you can be part of every conversation that we're having right here on Channel Africa by simply tweeting us. Our handle is Channel Africa 1. That's Channel Africa Numerical 1 on Twitter. You can also send us your emails to info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. If you prefer sending WhatsApp messages. That number is plus two seven seven six three zero zero double three two seven plus two seven seven six three hundred double three two seven. Now, Zimbabwe's justice minister has cast doubts on whether two leading South African lawyers can appear in a Harare court this week to support opposition leader Nelson Chamisa's challenge to the July presidential poll. Advocates Dalimbofu and Tembega Ngugaitobi arrived in Zimbabwe last week to support the high-profile case, but Justice Minister Ziambi Ziambi says they can't practice without his permission. He says they need to apply to him to consider the request and advise the Law Society of Zimbabwe accordingly. Chemisa's petition will be heard on Wednesday at the Constitutional Court. To discuss it further, we have in studio Professor David Moore, who is from the University of Johannesburg. Hello and thank you very much for joining us, Professor. Thanks for asking me, Sipumalele. Mm. All right. So let's start with um, the justice minister saying that his permission is needed for these lawyers from South Africa to um, uh, to practice in Zimbabwe. Of course, um, his permission would be needed, no? Well, I would think so. I'm a bit surprised that they waited this long to find things out. But we've seen that the president of the country, Munangagwa, has sometimes slipped up on issues of the law like the the Minister of Defense is also the Vice President, and that's unconstitutional. So we've and we saw Monagagwa say that he stepped in to allow or to to uh, uh, give to, to to allow Tendai Beatty to have bail. Uh, when so we seem to see some stepping over of the boundaries as far as the law is concerned, and this uh, and this government. But um, I would think it. I, I really don't know. Um, generally, people do need work permits to go there. Uh, I think they can be short-term, and I would think that they could be got very quickly. This is probably a stalling tactic. Mm. Um, It's not the first time that a lawyer from South Africa has gone over to Zimbabwe to represent a high-profile politician. Yes, if you remember back when uh, Morgan Shangarai, the the late Morgan Shangarai, was... um, on, on trial for treason, there was this concocted video made by some Australian uh, for the SBS in, in Australia uh, where they spliced some tapes together, very sloppily done, um, saying that Morgan Shankarai was uh, planning to assassinate Mugabe. And that was George Bezos, um, the very famous South African lawyer. And we have some very pretty famous South African lawyers up there now. Mm. Um, is it just the South Africans that they have a problem with? Um, would the same rules apply to the Zambian, for example, to the American, to the Kenyan? 
One would think they would, yes. So that would be a bit odd that they're just uh, picking these South Africans. It's almost like they're picking a fight with South Africa. Mm. Um, and uh, let's talk about the uh, the f- uh, his um, uh, court bid now, Nelson Chamisa's court bid. It, it's getting support from quite a, a number of lawyers from uh, um, um, around the world, really. I was going to say around the continent, but it actually is crossing oceans. Um, does that strengthen his uh, chances of succeeding? Well... I think you should see this as a political process. Um, One doesn't have too much faith in the constitutional court. Um, They're appointees of the Senate government. One interesting um, tension might be that some of the judges, and I don't know, I haven't followed this through, might have been appointed by Mugabe. And if you remember, and I'm I'm sure you do and your listeners do, in the coup in November, um, most of Mugabe's supporters lost out. Although, interestingly enough, some of the ZANU-PF MPs who won are actually the G40 group, right? I was visiting a constituency uh, before the election, a couple of weeks before the election, stopped in at a hotel, and the patrons were telling me that the ZANU-PF candidate was actually G40. So, I, I wouldn't put a lot of faith in the constitutional court per se. I would say look at this as a political process. We might even have the constitutional court uh, homes being surrounded by soldiers so that they go the right way. Mm. Or they might lose their farms. Or they might be thrown out of court if that's, if, if that's possible. Anything's possible. Um, so I think what is happening here is we are seeing a widening of the process, a widening of this process of democracy. It's wider than it ever has been before. None of these cases have come up so quickly. Back in 2013, the then, I think he was then the deputy uh, head of the Constitutional Court, Luke Malaba, um, they decided that they didn't have enough time to judge the uh, veracity of uh, Morgan Shangarai's claims that the election was not free and fair. Um, and it took four years to write that report, which was not a very um, a very happy report if you happen to be supporting the MDC. Now we have two days. On the 22nd, they will sit, and they have two days. It will be live-streamed, as far as I know. You will have, if they get their work permits, maybe the thing will be postponed. Mm. Um, this could be a delaying tactic, because the numbers are very fuzzy. Um we would have Jeremy Gauntlet, who's one of South Africa's toughest lawyers, yeah. and he's very liberal. He he um, took the case for Mike Campbell and Ben Freeth uh, to the SADC tribunal about uh, based on racializing the taking of land, and the SADC tribunal, which then had quite a liberal idea about property rights ruled in favor of that uh, appeal. But of course, it was totally ignored by the Zimbabwean government. And within a few months, the SADC tribunal judges were, the contracts were let go, and there was there was nothing to happen. So mm-hmm. Jeremy Gauntlet is quite familiar with the uh, Zimbabwean case. Dalian Pope, and, and he's very liberal. If you had to put him in a political camp, and I don't mm. know if he is or not, he would be DA. <laughs> yeah. And then you have Dalian Pofu, who's the EFF guy. <laughs> but as he said, he will. Uh, he's a lawyer. Uh, he defended uh, uh, Tom Moyani. Patricia Dillil. And, and Patricia Dillil and, and Gareth Cliff. Yeah. Uh, he didn't do such a great job with Tom Oyani. Um, 
you know, you have Tendai Beatty, you have Nelson Chimisa, you have um, Melilo, who is uh, who was the SRC UCT president yeah. in 2004, and then he became the uh, spokesperson for this for the South African province of uh, the MDC. He ran as a candidate. He's there as a lawyer. Yeah. You have fantastic lawyers within Zimbabwe, and within the MDC, and you have some pretty good ones on ZANU-PF too. Zimbabwe is full of very good lawyers. It's, it's very interesting that you have this this dichotomy, this tension between the military and force and the law and democracy. And it's all, of course, very political. So you have this legal process, which is now a global process. We have an American lawyer, I think, who's coming in, Kenyan lawyers. And remember, Kenya was a fascinating case Mm -hmm. when the Constitutional Court ruled that last election null and void, had another election. Odinga refused to run in that election, yeah. and now Odinga and Uhuru are coming together again in some sort of a. Uh, what <laughs> do you think is? Um, let's say, let's say Zanu PF loses the court case. What might happen? Okay. Are we going let's back to a, a unity? Let's, let's make a bet. <laughs> yep. I still don't think they will let it go. Yeah. It, it would be such a big loss to their whole prestige. However, Emerson Mnangagwa has been playing the democratic game, saying we, we're going to do everything by the book, these are going to be free and fair elections, and that big disaster on August 1st. Yeah. When some soldiers, who ordered them? Were they rogue units? Were they Constantino Chowenga's special unit? Does he have one? We don't know. Um, that really, really put a big wedge in that promise that uh, for, you know, the British were hanging on to this thing for dear life. Let's get this guy in there. If he can only do a free and fair, we'll loosen up the process of, of donor funding and so on. They are not going to go for that. If if This could be this, the straw that breaks the camel's back. The the shooting of, of, of the of the MDC demonstrators was... was uh, Straw number one, straw number two could be this. So let's say that the pressure is on Monagagua so strong and the court that they rule in favor of the MDC. Okay, so then they can order a runoff. Now, I think both parties would be very much afraid of a runoff because you remember what happened in 2008 during uh-huh. the runoff. 170 MDC people killed, many thousands tortured, and, and people were storming in at the South African embassy to mm. try and get refuge and they made it, they made an arrangement with the churches they would go there mm. um, Chamisa would be under pressure I think from his party not to go into a unity government they have talks they're talking now they're talking about coalitions they were talking back in January it kind of goes back and forth I'm not sure perhaps a unity government perhaps a coalition government um, they could call another election now if if the court decided there should be another election, would the Zimbabwean ZEC be considered capable of running that mm. election? Because whether you think this was rigged or not, it was incompetent. There were missed, there were 100% plus at polls, there were some polls duplicated, there were names duplicated, there were just so many mistakes. And that's aside from all of the intimidation and the non-freedom of the media and so on. But yeah, but that would be the case even if it was a runoff, because w- it would still be the ZEC. Well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, if the ZEC was deemed incompetent, yeah, Sadek could come in yep. and run it. Yep. If Sadek was deemed unable, the AU could come in and run it, and the AU, if it was deemed not ready, could call in the UN. Yeah. Now the UN has run lots of elections. 
in Cambodia and so on. And it's very interesting that Zimbabweans have had a lot to do with running those elections. Reg Austin, former professor of law at uh, UZ, mm. uh, and now I think he's on the Human Rights Commission. He has run elections in, in many places. Mm. And there are many Zimbabweans who were working with him, and some of them very high up in the UN. So if, if, if we went all the way up to the UN, we could have a pretty good election mm. in 60 days, I think. They could do the runoff as well, perhaps. And that, I think, might be September 8th. I'm not sure if that would be the date for a runoff. So we have these possibilities. And, and of course, we have, we have possibilities of, 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 of discussions about a coalition government. Uh, should the MDC lose? Um, do they have any other option? I'm not sure, to tell the truth. All right. I'm not sure. All right, let's leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. All right. That is Professor David Moore, who is with the University of Johannesburg there, talking about um, what's going on in Zimbabwe at the moment um, with the court, with the court uh, case where Nelson Chamisa, the leader of the Movement for Democratic Change, is challenging those election results. Um, now, there are three South Africans. There is a Zambian. There there is a Kenyan and there is an American there who is uh, who are all representing uh, um who are all representing the Nelson Chamisa so yeah no appeal possible there says uh, professor David Moore thank you very much for joining us sir thank you for having me Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. It is now time for news headlines. Here's on Ellen Sinti. Security forces have been deployed to stop protests in the Ugandan capital Kampala following the arrest of the opposition musician and MP Bobby Wine. Mali's top court declares Ibrahim Boubacar Keita president following contested vote and political rift between Malawi President Peter Mutarika and Vice President Saulos Chilima is reported as the country prepares to head to polls next year. Channel African News, I'm Onelin Zinzi. Thank you very much, Onele. It is 17.30 Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Now, a suspected case of Ebola has been reported in Uganda. Panicked health workers have reportedly stepped up screening efforts at the country's border with the Democratic Republic of Congo. Doctors say the patient exhibited symptoms similar to the deadly virus and are awaiting laboratory results to confirm his status to speak to us more about this we're now joined on the line by dr Johannes tegan volde mariam who is the world health organization's representative in uganda thank you very much for joining us doctor 
good evening. Mm. Um, Thank you. All right. Now, Doctor, how do you pronounce your surname there? Walda Mariam. All right, sure. Um, yes. So that case in Uganda, um, or suspected case of Ebola, where was it found? Uh, no, uh, first of all, there is no suspected case of Ebola in Uganda. Uh, every now and then we get alerts of people who have a high temperature or have a symptoms which is uh, related to any viral hemorrhagic fevers. And this has been going on for uh, uh, respiratory fever, Crimean Congo, or uh, past experiences of Ebola. But to, uh, we, we have no suspected or confirmed case in Uganda today. Uh, so where did the panic that's being reported come from then? Uh, I think the panic... Uh Dr. Waldemariam? All right. Uh, yeah, you are back on the line. Um, you were telling us where the panic came from? The, the panic comes from uh, wrong uh, reporting and uh, people being generally uh, worried about the case, uh, any cases. You see, Uganda has a very uh, robust surveillance system. So there is uh, an increase in people trying to figure out if they say unexplained fever, especially in the high-risk areas which are bordering uh, DRC, where people are looking for one or other symptoms on people in their communities or people who are crossing the borders. But this case, these people do not always present with the Mm. Um, uh, Dr. Waldemarim, we keep on losing you there, but um, um, maybe if you can uh, just tell us whether Ugandans have reason to worry and panic. Uganda has uh, reason to worry because, uh, as you know, this current Ebola is happening in a conflict zone. So making, controlling it and containing it in DRC will be uh, a serious uh, uh, venture or uh, uh, difficult for, for all of us and we are trying to do all what we can. So considering that in some of the border crossing up to 20,000 people cross for business and return back, I think uh, Uganda has a good reason to get worried and that's why it is implementing a, a, a strong uh, screening and uh, surveillance system. Yes, we are worried. Mm. Um, uh, tell us but about that system. Because there is a case here. Yeah. Uh, tell us about that system that you have implemented in Uganda. So, basically what, what is happening is that uh, at least in uh, high volume uh, border uh, crossings uh, with the help of um, CDC, uh, USAID, Belair, Red Cross, uh, and the UN system, WHO, WSP, and UNICEF, we are measuring temperatures of people crossing the border and asking them uh, if they have any signs and symptoms or contact with uh, a non-Ebola case or people who recently died from bleeding illnesses. And then through that screening, if we find even though they don't have contacts, 
if, for example, we find someone having fever, then we will put that person aside and uh, see if the temperature goes down, if they have other histories. And if we are suspicious, we call it an alert case, and then we might take blood to test if the person has any of the viral hemorrhagic fevers, including mother, Crimean Congo, Ebola, or Rift Valley fevers. How quickly can Ebola spread? We know that um, with the last one in the DRC, it was contained very quickly, um, whereas um, in West Africa, for example, the, the previous um, spread happened very quickly and it crisscrossed across countries. How quickly can it spread? We have the same strain which, which uh, devastated the West Africa, so if, if it comes, it would spread fast. So that's why uh, identifying cases as soon as possible through uh, surveillance in the community as well as surveillance in the health facilities and through screening at the borders is important. I'm not sure how much you would know about what's happening across the border in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Maybe sensitization processes going on there? Uh, beg your pardon? I'm saying I'm not sure how much you'd know about what's happening across the border in the DRC. Um, no, maybe we, sensitization we, processes going on there in order for people to make sure that it doesn't spread beyond what it is now and it doesn't cross borders. We, we know in, in most of whatever is accessible uh, in, in, uh, for us, we know what is happening. Uh, the point is there are areas of conflict which are not accessible to us. In the areas which are accessible to us, the international community and most of all the Ministry of Health of DRC is leading a process of sensitizing the people, doing surveillance, uh, and uh, in the case of contacts, doing vaccination, what we call the ring vaccination, which proved to be very effective in, uh, the, in, in the previous Ebola outbreak in the western part of uh, DRC. All right, so to someone sitting in Uganda at the moment who's heard about this alleged case of Ebola, what are you saying to them? Uh, what I would say to them is uh, Ebola could, could happen anywhere in Uganda, could appear anywhere in Uganda. And it is important if they see any of the symptoms, people bleeding from uh, their, their body parts, with fever, and most of important, with the contact history, with an Ebola case, they should notify, they should not touch those uh, people, uh, not handle them, because it takes, uh, uh, it needs a protection. So to refer them to the uh, nearest hospital so that killed people could uh, take care of them and handle them in a very protected way. So that is very important, that the community being aware and notifying the health professionals is important. And health professionals are prepared? The health professionals are prepared. I think Uganda has a, a very strong surveillance system and it has undergone a few Ebola and other viral hemorrhagic fevers. And with collaboration with the Ministry of Health, we have trained uh, probably close to 600 case management uh, professionals throughout uh, Uganda. Um, we have trained uh, rapid response teams which can be deployed in the districts to investigate and sensitize the population 
and thus address any viral hemorrhagic fevers. All right, thank you very much for joining us, Doctor. You are welcome. That is Dr. Walter Merriam, who is the World Health Organization's representative in Uganda. Now, in celebrating Women's Month in South Africa, the Minister of Energy, Jeff Khatebe, hosted the Women in Energy Dialogue at the Midrand Conference Center in Johannesburg under the theme 100 Years of Albertina Sisulu, Women United in Moving South Africa Forward. Elizabeth Marabo, Chief Director of Programs and Projects at the Department of Energy, says the topic of the day focused and reflected on the transformation of the energy sector with more emphasis on concrete mechanisms and programs aimed at improving women's access to economic mainstream, including improving access to finance. The Minister of Energy, Honorable Jeffrey is requested that she meets with women to talk about transformation of the energy sector. Um, it is noted that globally, women's contribution to the energy sector, both as investors, academics, employees, is very limited. And yet studies have indicated that if you incorporate women at the leadership level, it will increase productivity of entities. That has been demonstrated by top 200 utilities globally. So in South Africa, we also need to ensure that in line with our laws, we entrench the participation of women in the energy sector. And the minister has invited women from all constituencies, clean energy, renewable, nuclear, electricity generation, oil and gas, and academics, financiers, and professionals working in the energy sector so that they can discuss the successes that they have experienced so far, the challenges that they are experiencing, and recommendations to the minister on how he can facilitate their further entrenchment in the sector and inclusion of more women and young people to participate in the energy sector. As you know, the energy sector will unlock economic growth in South Africa. It is the engine for economic development in any economy. And South Africa is investing a lot in energy infrastructure, so it is up and important at this point in time to ensure that women are hardwired in the sector and they make maximum contribution to it and also benefit from it. How far has the transformation of uh, the energy sector gone in as far as improving women's access to the economic mainstream is concerned? In terms of women participation, we have created a directory for women in energy. At this point in time, we have about 430 companies that are registered on the directory. Women that are working across the energy value chain have contributed significantly in the investment in generation capacity, in distribution in some areas, and also technology for energy. Some are also leading in the energy efficiency sector. Some are leading in the nuclear sector. So a number of women have been included, but the percentage is not very high and it is important that we increase their participation and this is exactly what the minister is doing, talking to the different constituencies and further also engaging with companies to make sure that women are included at every level across the value chain of the energy sector. What would you say are the major challenges for the women in the energy sector? The major challenge is accessing the opportunities. Energy sector is technical. 
And when procurement, for example, opportunities are being required, they need experience, which most of them may not have. Secondly, energy sector is capital intensive, and you need money to be playing a significant role in it. When they go to financial institutions to access funding, it's always difficult and next to impossible. So we need to make sure that the financial sector creates innovating instruments that would enable women to access funding. Then the other big issue is capacity. For a person, for example, to participate in the UTS sector, you need to be a certified service provider. So capacity building for such companies is very critical to ensure that they can effectively participate in the sector. So there are different requirements, information, access to information, access to finance, capacity, and also being able to have the networks. And the department is working towards engaging different stakeholders to ensure that we unblock some of those challenges. So when are we going to see a number of women swelling the ranks of uh, renewable energy as it is uh, the in thing that would be able to create more accessibility for them in the mainstream economy and other sectors of uh, the activities of uh, development? I think we given the dialogue that the minister is having, the policy that has been put in place, the strategy that is being concluded, and also the empowerment codes that are being developed. We are looking forward to having more and more women in the space, and we, in my opinion, we can look at the next five years, we should be having a significant number of women playing a major role in the energy sector from different angles. That is Elizabeth Marabo, Chief Director of Programs and Projects at the Department of Energy, talking to Wandi Le Kalipa, 17.45 Central African Time. Here's Usani Matebula with your economic news. Good evening, thanks. As Pumelele, South African producer Impala Platinum Impleta says it expects its full year loss to widen due to impairments relating to its Rustenbeck assets. The company flagged a headline loss per share for the year ending 30th June between 14 and 15 American cents per share compared with the loss of 10 cents per share in 2017. Implants announced earlier this month that it will slash about a third of its workforce over two years in one of the biggest rounds of job counts by one mining company in living memory in South Africa with a focus on Rustenburg. The company is due to report full-year results next month. PepsiCo has announced it's buying SodaStream for over $3 billion. Israeli-based SodaStream makes a machine and refillable cylinders allowing users to make their own carbonated drinks. The deal gives Pepsi a new way of reaching customers in their homes at a time when its signature sugary drinks are becoming less popular. And South Africa's finance minister, Tlantlanene, has asked the land bank to prepare for the land expropriation without compensation. Nene was speaking during the release of the bank's financial results, which show that a, 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 there is a 9% increase in profit. 
among the things we discussed I, um, in, in, the, in the AGM, I did raise the issue where I requested the board of the land bank to prepare themselves and to conduct an impact analysis of the anticipated government policy shift of land expropriation without compensation. How it is going to impact on the bank's balance sheet and how it can leverage on the activities of the two policy departments, the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries and the Department of Rural Development and Land Reform. The public hearings into tax administration and governance of the South African Revenue Services will resume in the capital, Pretoria. The the hearing relates to how suspended Commissioner Tom Moyane managed the Revenue Service. The inquiry will take place from Tuesday. Naledi Ngobo reports. The second session of the SARS inquiry will open with testimonies from three witnesses on the first day. The hearing follows a ruling to dismiss all of the objections made by suspended SARS Commissioner Tom Moyani. Moyani wanted one or both the SARS inquiry and the disciplinary inquiry against him stopped. He had argued that the two processes overlapped and formed an unfair double attack on him. At the time, the South Commission Chair, retired Judge Robert Nugent, said the inquiry was established by proclamation under the hand of the President and did not have the power to dissolve itself. President Cyril Ramaphosa established the inquiry into SARS in an effort to stabilize and restore confidence in the revenue collector. Naledi Ngobo, SABC News, Johannesburg. Meanwhile, Anglo Gold Ashanti has swung back into first half uh, profit on the back of higher production and lower than expected retrenchment costs. Africa's top gold producer posted headline earnings per share of 99 million US dollars for January to June, compared with a headline loss for the same period last year of 89 million dollars. The turnaround in performance is also due to the absence of once-off non-cash settlement costs for silicosis class action claims, which hit its earnings last year. In Ghana, Anglo Gold says the redevelopment of its historic Obasi mine is also on track. Financial indicators, uh, the dollar at 10.68, Botswana Pula, 10.21, Zambian Kwacha, BRICS currencies, the dollar 3.91, Brazilian Real, 66.99 Russian ruble, 69.68 Indian rupee, 6.83 Chinese yuan, and at 14.64 South African rand. Commodities gold $1,185, platinum $786 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil down $71.50 per barrel. That's how it's looking right now. Seventeen fifty Central African time. Thank you very much. Uh, we sign for that update. Here's Musibudi Makura with your sports news.
Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with tennis news, Kevin Anderson has moved back in the top five of the official ATP rankings. The South African reached the last 16 of last week's Cincinnati Masters, where he was beaten 6-2, 6-4 by Belgium's David Guffin. He, however, earned enough points to jump one spot to number five on the official rankings. Namal Farah has announced that he will be heading up to the northeast in a bid to make great North Run history. The four-time Olympic gold medalist and six-time world champion, won the half marathon back in 2014, 2015, 2016, as well as in 2017, and a fifth win would put him in the record books. Also taking part will be Olympic and world champion Kenyan Vivian Chariot, aiming for a second win in three years. Now the race from Newcastle to South Shields takes place on the 9th of September. On to football news, Orlando Pirates target and Zambian international striker Lazarus Kambole made history this past weekend when he scored the fastest hat-trick in the history of the CAF Champions League during a 3-0 win over Mbambani Swallows in a Group D encounter played at the Mavuzo Sports Centre in Swaziland. It took Kambole only three minutes to score a hat-trick and put his team in contention for qualification of the last eight. Now Zesco currently sits third in their group and here is coach George Lewandamina talking about the tactics on the day. The game wasn't all that easy. Though we managed to to get three three goals. Um, our strategy yeah, was to press them high. Uh, we knew that they would make mistakes at the back and capitalize on, on the same. In the second half, we had to sit behind. We knew they waste their own time by interpassing. They were not progressive. And that that is how we we came out victorious in this game. Now going to the last round of matches, Group D remains very tight. Tunisian giants Italy du Sahel have already secured their spot in the next qualifiers, but any of the three Southern African teams, that is Primero da Augusto, Zesco, as well as Swallows, can still make it through the quarterfinals. Now while Swallows is bottom of the group with four points and head coach Tabo Vilagati, whose team will take on the Angolians in the last game, remains on a prayer. It remains a, a, a prayer. It remains a prayer that, uh, and maybe God will be on our side in our, our last game, <laughs> and and we beat them. Uh, yeah, there's nothing impossible in football, and we beat them there. Uh, and Sahel, they're still gonna play uh, Zesco in Zambia. Who knows what will happen. And finally, Bongi Wamsomi, captain of the South African national netball team, believes the team will do well in the upcoming quad series in Australia and New Zealand. The team has finished bottom behind New Zealand as well as Australia and England in the past two years and only registered one win against England in the process. However, the team have been improving considerably and uh, Bongi Wamsomi says she's proud with what the team has achieved thus far. From our side, it's actually putting the plan into place when we're playing and I think we've been doing that um, for the past two years. Unfortunately, we haven't really came up with the wins where we really thought we could. It was great to win against England and I know one of the games we drew and lost extra time and then last year, if not this year actually, we won um, against them, which was a great um, take out for us. But I think it's, it's again... Um, being together and working the things that we obviously want to work on and we've been doing that very well it's it's now up to getting on the court and really 
putting the plan into place. And I'll leave it there for now. I'm back with more sports news just before 8 p.m. Central African time. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.55 Central Africans. I'm recapping our top stories. The much-anticipated Judicial Commission of Inquiry into State Capture in South Africa has commenced. Tributes continue to pour in following the death of one of the world's foremost diplomats. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumela Lezonde, producer Luanda Mahoma, technical producer Dumelo Mugwena, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you very much for joining us. You can send us your emails. It is info at channelafrica.co.za on WhatsApp, plus 2776-300-3327, plus 2776-300-3327. Two, uh, three, three, two, seven, rather, and you can tweet us on Channel Africa One. We leave you with Nase by La Sauce.
Yeah, police are baby. Yeah, police are baby. 